0: This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com incubator.
1: This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. I am Dr. Ben Korsha
0: and I'm Dr. Daphne Yesova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians.
1: Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Incubator Podcast. It is Sunday. We are back with a fresh set of interviews. Daphne, how are you today?
0: Uh, I'm doing really well. I have really been looking forward to this interview, actually. Um because I I enjoyed our interview so much because this is something that we're trying to do where we are. So <laughs> that we kind of do, but not the way that they do it. So um I, I, I hope that lots of people
1: can take a, away a lot from this interview. I'm not the best um, at... I'm pretty good at discharge planning, but I'm not the best. And no matter how hard I try, it's never it's never good enough for Daphna. So that's why you'll see why this interview <laughs> is, is, is to her liking. Ah. But um, no, we were very excited to have um, on our show today a... Uh, first of all, it's great. It's the first time we're doing this where we're having on both a physician and a nurse practitioner. I think it's kind of cool that we are this tandem always, we always work with our PAs and nurse practitioners, um, really in, in synchrony. So, so it's kind of nice to be able to showcase that, that relationship on the podcast as well. Um, so today we have on the show, um, Kim Kruger, who, um, has a very interesting story. She began her career as a nursing assistant and she had an encounter with a baby with osteogenesis imperfecta. I won't leave I won't give you more than that. And that really sparked her interest in pursuing uh, a career as a provider in neonatology. She earned her nursing degree at New Mexico State University. She worked in a small NICU before moving to Phoenix to work in a larger unit and pursue her NNP degree. She held various positions at a level 3 regional medical center in Phoenix, worked as a flight nurse for seven years. She obtained her nurse practitioner certificate at Bethel School of Nursing and has since worked for multiple neonatology groups. Currently, she works for Envision as a staff nurse practitioner and is a core team member supporting Vines, which we'll talk about today. She is joined on the show by Dr. Amit Agrawal, who's the regional medical director in the Southwest for Envision Physician Services. He is an Arizona native, but trained at UCLA and Johns Hopkins for his pediatric residency and neonatology fellowship, respectively. He oversees um, 12 NICUs comprising close to 25,000 annual deliveries and has a team of over 50 providers. His passion lies in education, innovation, and program development. Please join us in welcoming to the show Kim Kruger and Dr. Amit Agarwal. Amit Agarwal, Kim Kruger, thank you so much for both uh, being on the show with us this morning. It's
2: great to be here.
1: Yeah, thank you for having us. Um so um we we always like to uh we always like to start with a little bit of of background and and find out exactly how you got to where you you arrived and if it's okay uh, Amit I want to start with with Kim because um I was reading through your bio Kim and at some point you mentioned that uh what sparked your interest in in becoming uh Uh, uh, involved in in neonatology was this incident where a doctor was brought in by the police to write feeding orders on a baby that was uh, not being fed in the NICU. I'm going to try not to get into much more detail, but can you tell us what that story is?
2: Yes, and I saw Ahmed's eyes go. No, really hardly anybody knows this story, but I was a nurse's aide working in a little tiny unit that was combined postpartum labor and delivery in NICU A little four-bed NICU, and the nurse in there said she could not feed the preemies. And I have six younger brothers. I'm like, well, I'll feed one. And so I (laughs) was in the corner feeding the preemie. And here came the police with one of the two pediatricians in town, and they made him write a feeding order for a baby that I didn't even know was there in the corner. It was a little baby with osteogenesis imperfecta, and uh, apparently there was some. Someone had reported him, and then we had to start feeding the baby. And I was on night shift, so the parents weren't there. Nobody, it was kind of a small to-do, but uh, the RN was kind of standing in the back with her arms crossed. She was in charge of all three units, and I had a feeling she's the one that did it. But wow. <laughs> I never researched it any further. But then I, it, it just became fascinating to me, to that baby that was born with all the broken bones. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, that's what got me started.
1: What what year was that? Was that before all the, the baby <laughs> doe's law in and the area? And uh, I mean...
2: Oh, yeah. It was before the baby doe. It was probably 86. That's it? Okay. That?
1: I mm-hmm. also want people not to get the feeling that they're somewhere in this country that we... no. <laughs> I think because I think thankfully we've moved uh, past that stage of uh, of newborn care and so on. So oh man, what a fascinating story! Yeah, we were probably uh, five
2: years later when I had moved to Phoenix, a bigger unit to get some experience. When the everyone talked about the baby dough uh-huh. law, and I'm like, oh yeah, I know where that came from. <laughs> anyway, partially, I'm familiar with the with the problem that problem. Wow. <laughs> uh,
1: well. Amit, I want to maybe uh, ask you a, a similar question. Maybe maybe you do have a story where a police officer forced a physician to write some <laughs> orders. Yeah. But uh, other than that, like what um, what 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 led you to pursue a career in neonatology? What was sort of the inspiration there? Yeah, I
3: definitely don't have anything to match Kim's story, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I for me it was when when you're going through medical school, you have so many options, right, and you're. You're at those deliveries from an OB rotation. And my eyes would always turn away from preparing the and and focusing on the mom to what's going on with the baby. And the reason, I, I think, is there's no other subspecialty that you can interact with a family before, a very, very tense, crucial moment, at and during, and then after. And we're talking about the delivery. So you're really in so many different, phases of of support and comfort for this family so you're not only medically able to support them um and and care for very sick babies but you're also you're also interacting with them at very vulnerable times across the continuum of what you know their experience is so it's it's very unique um also Uh unique is no other icu uh, allows us to, to have a baby or have a patient in there for 70 to 80 days, 100 days. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all seen that. And, and you look at adult care and those patients were there for four or five days. Sometimes they'll get trachs, G-tubes, whatever yep. it is, they'll get sent over to skilled nursing facilities. So we have such a blend of acute care and chronic care. And I think that differentiates mm-hmm. the NICU um, you know, very well.
0: It's so interesting that one of the things that actually drew you to neonatology is the fact that you are participating in those transitions of care. That's because that's why we have you on uh, today is really to talk about um, the discharge home. Um, But it's, it's interesting because it seems like the neonatal community is just kind of really focusing on these transitions of care, really putting... A lot of energy and research. Obviously, individuals have been doing this for decades, but really, as a community, saying, you know, um, the prenatal consult is a huge part of our neonatal care—not just something nice that we do. Um, Setting up the medical home at discharge is not just something nice that we do; it, it, you know, changes outcomes. Um, So, what do you think has maybe led this shift um, for? for our intensivist colleagues to say, we got to think about the the bookends of the admission?
3: Yeah, I, I think it, it's a great question. And I, I would say that altruistically, I would hope that it would come from us as neonatologists and say, yep, yep, we are thinking about the right things on both ends and, and the holistic approach to care of these neonates. But I, I honestly think there's so many other pressures in the medical sure. community right now, right? And cost is a big mm-hmm. one and when we think about how we optimize care prenatally and postnatally we really are trying to limit length of stay readmissions you know urgent care ed visits so all of that cause uh, contributes to cost in, in our you know care model and so i feel like at least some of the initial progress towards uh, and attention towards this is driven by some of the pressures that we're feeling uh, as a medical community but that doesn't take away from the the importance of the work and the need for the work. And you're right, this is this is nothing new. We we've been talking <laughs> about this for so long, and uh, but I'm not sure we've optimized it as well as we could have. And there's so much that's leaving the the hospital. Meaning, you know, the the hospital is very good at acute care, but once you start transitioning to care more chronic, those patients may not need to be in the hospital, or they need different support structures once they leave. Um, I don't think that's what we've really established well for the NICU.
1: It's it's very interesting that you say that because it does feel like it, especially um, as we go through fellowship training, as we go through uh, our early years, we, we, we kind of get this realization that we are really focused on the intensive care part of the admission. And then as the recovery starts happening, it's like, well, you know, woof, out of the woods and things will sort themselves out. But it's really not mm-hmm. true. Like they don't just sort themselves out. And uh,
0: yeah, and I mean, be... it's really just the beginning for these families, right? When you think about a a a life with with any child, but especially a, a child medical complexity.
1: And and without creating too much controversy, but you can see it in the variability <laughs> when it's like <laughs> Brady watches and stuff like that. Where it's like, was Is it three that? days? Is it five days? Like, w- number one, it's been pretty well established that we have no clue <laughs> what's <laughs> the right way to monitor <laughs> yeah. these babies prior to yeah. discharge. And we're not really prioritizing that either, right? I mean, it's not like this is a, a big focus of making sure, like, hey, we need to know what is the proper monitoring period so that statistically, a baby with a bradycardic event can actually be safely discharged. We sort of like, like, whatever, just be consistent, and 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 we'll we'll figure that out. So I think I think this is um, this is very interesting. Um, I, we are. Um, Big fans of of the vines, um, yeah. I guess the the I guess of vines, the virtual neonatal support program <clears throat> that you both are uh, spearheading. And uh, for people who may not be uh, familiar, what is what is vines and what led to its inception? And and I'll let you decide who wants to take this question.
3: Well, I'll tell you. Um, so my wife's a general pediatrician and um you know we we've had many dinner table conversations where she sees patients we discharge from the NICU and so so we've actually there was, was just one conversation and i remember very specifically but she was asking me what what do i do with these ng feeds like what what do i do with them and i said what do you mean what do you do with them you you know advance the volumes as the baby grows you you know, you make sure the baby's gaining weight, like all the normal things that we do in the NICU. But, and this is coming from a, a woman who's far smarter than I am. But, uh, but in the moment, uh, and that wasn't the only example, but in the moment, I was like, wow, there, there is a disconnect uh-huh. between what we do in the hospital and what we expect our pediatrician partners to do. And then how that whole transition looks in that first month, two months of life for these patients. And, there has to be a solution where we as neonatologists or nurse practitioners can get out of the mindset of the four walls of the hospital. Uh-huh. How do we impact patients beyond the four walls of a hospital? And that's how Vines was was really started. If you think about a vine, it needs support to grow. And so our patients are little support to little little vines that need support to uh-huh. grow. And and our our grow and if you ask him, I mean, acronyms is like what I spend every evening trying to Stop. figure out is, is what, what's the next acronym that we, we can-
0: love acronyms. I think this one is in our top 10 for oh, sure.
3: Yeah. <laughs> wow. is, I will take that. Um, and so, our
0: logo is fabulous too. Yeah. It's adorable. It's adorable.
3: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, that's how it started. It started with understanding there's a need based on what, what we were talking about at the dinner table every night. And, uh, and then really growing that to say, well, how do we how do we support patients once they're discharged from the hospital to to meet that need? Kim, you you want to definitely add add what you what you can.
2: Well, and I think that a piece that a lot of people don't know is our company offers if you think of a good gig and it makes you know makes some money, we'll help you with it or split profits. And that's always interesting to me because I've come up with lots of ideas in my lifetime that just got integrated into the system. You know, you don't ever get real credit for them. You just start a program, it runs, people run it, you go on and do something different. Um, so I think that's an opportunity for people today that are interested in that. But um, I believe care really starts when they go home. The, the biggest difference is there, um, developmental follow-up, uh, everything that's done at home. And so when Amit proposed this to us and needed a couple people to help him get it uh, off the ground I was jumped right in there it was perfect perfect idea and a lot of people think well I don't know pediatric care I, I'll have to learn a lot but you don't it's just the things that you do every day uh, you know the questions they have are are something you can easily address
1: this episode is so proudly sponsored by Reckitt it Meet Johnson Racket Meat Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive infantile portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meatjohnson.com. So let me um, me, uh, try to um, tease apart a little bit some of this project, because I think you are all very familiar with it. We are uh, somehow familiar with it as well. But for the audience member who are trying to wrap their heads about uh, around, what does that mean when uh, we're trying to provide support to babies as they're transitioning care from inpatient to outpatient? So what is the model that you ended up settling on when it comes to, um, so do you bring in the pediatrician who, who are going to be following these babies outside into the unit or are neonatologists going out into the community? and? How did you decide what was the best framework for that?
3: Yeah, that's that's a good good opportunity to level set a little bit here. So, so Vines is a virtual program, so everything is done virtually, and and I think we all understood the pressure of the pandemic, and it probably helped us. At least the parity laws uh, within the state in terms of um, you know payers, etc. You know, a, a lot of that helped get get this off the ground. But it's a virtual program that has two arms two distinct arms one is a virtual uh-huh. nicu urgent care okay so patients have 8am to 8pm monday through friday and then 8am to 2pm saturday and sunday full access to a nurse practitioner neonatal nurse practitioner or a neonatologist every day so so they have they have the ability at 8pm at night for them to say you know what i have a question within the first month of uh-huh. leaving home, I'm not going to go run to the emergency room or urgent care. Instead, I'm just going to call, call Vines. And it's all virtual, meaning you, they just go to a website and they enter their name and they get put into a waiting room. And then the physician or the nurse practitioner who's actually taking that shift will then get a text message and say, you have baby James in in the waiting room. So um, So that yeah. NICU urgent care, because we can't predict when That's problems us. will happen, when families will have And it's issues. always in and the
0: middle. It's always in the evening.
3: <laughs> it's always in the evening after That's their right. clinic's closed, after their pediatrician's gone home. Um, But, you know, the unpredictability of, well, why do these things always happen on nights? I mean, think about right. our NICU shifts where we're like, if it just happened during the day, we'd That's have more a- people, but we don't have all the resources at night. so. The unpredictability of of when a mom or a dad will be worried about their baby um, uh-huh. is real, and so that that that's the urgent care piece. And then the second piece is really more of uh-huh. a proactive piece, which is scheduling visits with these patients. So we schedule a couple of visits so that they can already get into the system. We can help transition that piece uh, of care from in the hospital to home, and then we're sending all of this information back to the pediatrician. We've actually had pediatricians. On calls with us, we've had pediatricians uh, call us through that's Vines great after their clinic and say, "Hey, you know what? I saw a thirty two weeker today. Um the baby's not growing what What should I do I mean we th- we talk formula and feedings and growth and nutrition every single day, but this is if you if you look at even just the prematurity rate of twelve percent or ten to twelve percent nationally you're this is such a small subset of our pediatrician uh-huh. patients, right? Yet it it has a it takes a disproportionate amount of time for them, uh-huh. and so if we can help with that, that that's really you know what we're there for. So it's the two arm strategy of one being available when and where patients need them and, and need the support, and then two proactively trying to help them through that first month with some scheduled vi- visits.
0: Yeah, I think it's such an incredible um, program because. Just like we talked about early in the show, discharge coordination and planning and discharge, quote unquote, teaching um, is becoming a much more hot topic that that hospitals are really working on. But it almost seems like no matter what planning and teaching we do, there are just some things we cannot anticipate, right, that are going to happen after the babies go home. Um, and this seems like a great model for for bridging that um, scary for families, but also dangerous transition for babies.
3: Yeah, and I think you know, one of the things we've learned, and it's been it's been so eye eye opening. There's so many different aspects of of the program that we we get insight now into into the to the familial stresses that happen at home. We can see them in their home, but I'll tell you that out of all the visits we've we've done, we've done over 800 visits. Um, we, three quarters of the time, a family feels that the, the visit has prevented an emergency room or, or urgent care visit. So 76% of the time, a family after the visit will say, yep, that did prevent me from going to, to the hospital. But if you look at the physician or the nurse practitioner side, it's only about 26%. So it's actually inverted the physician or the nurse practitioner feels that only a quarter of the time did I prevent that patient from going to the ED or urgent care. So when you try to try to get into the psychology of that, it's actually really interesting because I think when we, when we went through PEDS residency, we were in the emergency room, there were many times we asked, why did this patient come in for this? Why are they here? They didn't need to come in for this. And And so... Patients will go into the hospital for constipation because they have for 90 days seen a nurse change their diaper every three hours and document stools and urines and, and do that in a very, very scheduled environment. And now that environment doesn't exist. And so if it's different than what they ex- experienced in the hospital, they think something's wrong. So you know it's it's really interesting, and and I think that's why we see so many patients bounce back to our hospital, and we don't even see all the ones that go to the ED, but just get readmitted, and and that's still a significant number. So, um, it, it's it's really teaching us a lot about the psychology of of what stress this or how how much stress these parents feel when they go home,
2: and it really helped us to feed back into our discharge planning. So now every day I tell the nurses when they come to me with no stool in 24 hours, I'm like, don't tell the parents this. (laughs) Tell them it's okay for a couple of days because we do get a lot of that mimicking behavior. They see what we're doing and and they, they feel that's what they need to do.
0: Yeah, that was one of my next questions was, um, was that, that you guys have learned so much and some, per- some hospitals, some units will never be able to do what you guys are doing, but we could do a better job of discharge teaching. So what are some of the yeah major pearls that you've learned that are the, you know, uh, like you told us constipation was one, what are the things you get the most, you know, calls for? Or quote unquote constipation, right? It's not really constipation.
2: <laughs> it's just that
3: they didn't get a glycerin
2: after twenty four hours or something. <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> Beatings, I
2: think, is our biggest um, question, and also um, stomach aches. Stomach. The parents are very concerned when the babies are crying and they're pulling their legs up and they're in pain. And I did ask, in I did, and gas, you know. So I did ask the nurses, why do all the babies at home have? all these gas problems and we don't have that much here. And they're like, those parents are terrified to burp the baby. They never tap them mm-hmm. hard enough. And so uh, that gas is a big one. I would do got the stats uh, of what are but feeding issues is our most, our most common. Uh, when, on a gavage tube or NG feeds, when do I advance? You know, the baby seems hungry all the time. Well, they're still on the same feed they were two weeks ago. Uh, a lot of feeding
3: Yeah, and I think we, we, again, we psychologically train parents to feed that. It's volume-based, right? We 150, 160 per kilo. Right, that we advance every two days,
0: right? Some units, yeah. (laughs) We advance
3: every couple of days. We increase the feeds. Um, And then I I don't know what, what you guys practice, but I think, you know, a lot of places within a couple of days of discharge, once that baby's eating a good percentage, pull the NG, and then usually within 48, 72 hours, they're out the door. But that's, again, an average baby under 1,500 grams is staying about 70, 72 days in the NICU. So so we are trying to model home behavior in two or three days that we've really, you know, haven't undone what we've done for 70, 70 plus days in the NICU. So um, volume-based is, is really, is a big focus that we try to undo in our vines visits, saying, no, let the, let the baby ad lib means ad lib means the baby can eat what. What he or she wants, when he or she wants, and and you don't have to to do the fifty every three that we were doing in the hospital. Um, a lot of, uh, and especially as we had a, you know, national formula shortage, we were getting a lot of questions about uh, what are alternatives? Huh. What do I do to feed my baby? And you know, nutritionally, I think we we have a lot more insight into calcium, phosph, and protein and um, m- macro micronutrients that. Certain formulas can or can't provide. And so we were able to guide them quite a bit more in terms of what is an analog for this brand or this type of partially hydrolyzed or, um, or elemental formula. So I think, I think it was, it was feeding is the big, big bucket, but we've definitely, um, done a lot of uh, counseling and work on medications too. Um, not really understanding what to take when to take it vitamin multivitamin with iron without iron Um, parents have a lot of choices when they go home and they don't always read the big stack of discharge paperwork that that's sent home with them so um, i I would say those
1: are the the, definitely the big buckets what are some of the biggest challenges you faced in setting up this program
3: yeah i think you know when we when we look at one I, I don't think everybody can do this program unless you have a team that's committed. And, you know, I'm so fortunate to have Kim. Um, we have two other core providers, Abby Kaspar and uh, Regan Rosson. And and they, they are, they have been kind of the, the heart and the mind of the program. You have to have people that are committed who are willing to say, you know what, I will cover 8am to 8pm on demand yeah. because we can't pay hourly for for when we have two or three visits a day because that that's just not a sustainable program. Right. So um having the right team I think uh w- I was very blessed with and and we we do but in terms of other bar- um, other barriers nobody understood how these visits would be conducted, who would schedule them, um how are they going to be reimbursed, right? So who's who's doing all of the back end work as physicians and nurse practitioners it's very it's much easier we can do a 20 30 minute visit we can counsel we can document we're good at that stuff but who's organizing it who how where are we storing the data i mean there was a lot of integral work that happened initially that uh, that we had to do a lot of <laughs> provocative thought to try to understand well it is it is our national company storing this data is it somebody else locally who else can we partner with how do we get patients from NICUs that we aren't even at, <laughs> because it can become very, very territorial um, when you have other competing groups in the community, right? So, so we paired with a state-based organization called Smoothway Home, and Smoothway Home was already, already in, interested in, in the transition of NICU patients from hospital to home, but they were doing a lot of the care coordination, um, rehab, you know, community, community integration. But they didn't have the medical piece. Right. They didn't have uh, a neonatologist or nurse practitioner to be able to support them um, when they do a home health visit or they do a home visit and they they feel like this patient actually needs to see a physician or nurse practitioner. So so pairing with them, I think, allowed us really access to all the NICUs across the state of Arizona. Yeah, that's great. And uh, and once those patients are discharged, they're not mm-hmm. a NICU's patient or a or a or a um, new neonatal provider's patient, they're the community's patient. And at that point, you know, we we should provide them the support that they deserve.
0: I think that's an important point when we talk about like buy-in, right? Because because I think parents feel that they feel like for some moment of limbo, they don't belong to anybody, right? And and so I think definitely getting buy-in in your community is is vital. So I'm hoping you can speak to some of those things specifically. You touched a little bit on the staffing model, but I'm sure people have more questions about that. Um, and then the the buy-in, right? How do you bring and a project w- like this to the quote unquote C-suite, right? And Ben, you have a add-on question?
1: <laughs> no, I was going to say you're so right. I mean, we've all experienced this where the ER calls you the- for like a patient that like was recently discharged. And Daphne and I talk about this all the time. Like the the smile on the parents' face when they see you, to who they they know, is almost therapeutic. And it's like you yes, haven't yes. done anything yet, but they're like, "Oh, somebody who knows my story, right?" So I completely understand what what you're saying, Daphne, in terms of um, these parents, the, the the buy-in and everything, um, how how important that is. So uh, yeah. But uh, but again, I think your question is 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 excellent. So I don't want to interpret them. yeah. How do you how do you pitch that to the C suite? Yes, is, yes. is the is the topic. Now?
3: Yeah, it's it's a good question, and um, I'll let you know Kim chime in here as well from from the community buy-in. I think when you look at you know, I think how how medical care is going is we really need to provide services outside of the walls of the hospital. So I would, I think how we approach this was we don't need to involve the hospital directly um, because this is a community okay. service, and it makes. It makes us more relevant. It it actually is a differentiator in the community when it comes to the value proposition that we have as a as a group, um, and and I think we engage with community partners to keep us sustainable. So financially um, helps us keep stay sustainable from a integration within the community. I mean, they are talking about vines, Smoothway Home, and Southwest Human Development. They're talking about vines in every meeting that they have. We've engaged payers, um, so we've gone straight to payers and say, "Look, this is value-based care in the new world." And I think that's that's the direction that we're going. But um, but I think to to get buy-in, you have to to show, especially for any any C-suite, whether it's you know our you know, larger company or you know, even hospitals, there has to be Perfect. return. And the return can't just be patient satisfaction, which is through the roof, or likeliness to use, but It it has to be, there has to be some monetary to value in there. And I think the long-term play here is a value-based care approach where we can go to a payer and say, look, if we did, if we cut 76% of your emergency room visits, um, that's saving Mm -hmm. you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so, and we've modeled this actually, even through, through our, our team and, you know, there, there are. Over one one point five million dollars in savings in just you know partial amount of the visits that we did, and so when you go to the payers, you can actually now talk about some some shared um you know, shared that's opportunity it. there. So I I think that's really well built in the adult world, but in the new needle world, value based care is is not. We're we're very mm-hmm. fee for service. We're bundled rates in the NICU, but I mean really from a value standpoint, we're not really seeing that um
1: uh-huh.
3: be too consistent so i think this is this is that step in that in that right
1: direction
0: yeah i think too when you talk about value based care like we know that the er and the urgent care is like not even the right place for most of these complaints like you you mentioned and bless our er doctors and our urgent care physicians but Most of them don't don't rightfully. So how would they have learned what to do with these preemies? So it's not just ER admissions. They're probably readmitted at much higher rates because nobody feels comfortable sending them home from the ER or the urgent care. Um, And that's a huge cost proposition. um, Then when you're not just looking at the ER admission, but uh, maybe a hospital hospital ambulance transfer to the nearest children's hospital and then an admission um, I mean, the cost is exponential, um, really, when you think about it.
3: Yeah, and I think just to add to that, I, I would I would say that even okay. general pediatricians okay. who have cared for these patients, and I've heard my wife again on the phone. And if a twenty four week baby, former twenty four weeker, who's now you know just got discharged from the NICU, if that mom calls and says this baby is breathing kind They're of, funny, or spitting up, right? There's like- something. What, what, what is she going to say? She's going to say, go yeah. to the emergency room. She's uh, on the phone. Mm-hmm. They can't triage those things, and the situation is too high risk. And so, you know, that's a situation where we can see the baby okay. directly. You know, this is an audio video. We can, um, We can talk to the mom. We can, you know, ask her about changes. We can understand what the baby's feeding or how the baby's been breathing. We can call back in an hour and check on okay. the baby again. And so... We we've done that where we've we felt like we really have prevented ED visits, but we've done the opposite too, where we've been right. worried about kids and and fast tracked them to to the ED and to get admitted. Uh, Kim, do you want to share some of that? Um, yes, those experiences uh, and that you that's had.
2: something we're not used to is sending a kid to the ER. So you get a call and. uh I bought a big uh, screen, you know, to make sure I could see the babies and we can take call from our phone, you know, because we can't be at our home all the time, but really just as visual of the baby, you can tell how they're doing. It doesn't take a <laughs> huge screen to do it, but you can see a baby's breathe a little bit harder, you know, nodding, you know, their head and um, send them into the ER. And we were able, probably everybody in our team will say, where were you born? let's get you back to that hospital. If it's one that has a PG unit, we've called forward to the hospital, warned them that the baby's coming in, asked them if they could take the baby right away. So essentially made sure there was a room in that PG unit before we sent them, because we do have a couple of choices where to send the babies. Um, But that piece is just super valuable. And you're right, Ben, when people see our face on the screen, they're like, Oh, yay. You know, I, I, And uh, Mm -hmm. we'll just say, you know, don't, uh, could you answer our questionnaire, but then take them to the hospital?
1: (laughs) But um, So that's something, yeah, that's something that I wanted to, uh, I guess, ask you because it is sort of the elephant in the room. And I can hear some of the skeptics saying the liability. Mm. Oh my God, like you, this is, why would I take this on, et cetera. Can you talk about that? And how I think personally, I think um, I've done a lot of, of um, outpatient follow-up and i think i think we tend to uh mystify a little bit some of that because people think that oh my god like a patient's going to call me and all hell's going to break loose when it really isn't true but how do you appease uh like you said the the people you're working with to say well this is something that can easily be managed and i guess to that point there's the liability standpoint but there's also this we talked about psychological biases but the other one is like we tend to think as neonatal provider that like as soon as they leave the NICU, I don't know how to take care of these babies anymore. Like they've, they're like these different animals that I now I don't know anything, and it's so untrue. Like you, you do ha- still have that expertise. So how do you um, reconcile these two things? Where number one, the providers feel comfortable answering questions after a baby has left the NICU, and uh, the other one where they feel comfortable that this is not going to put their licenses on the line, and and this is not going to be the the death of their career because they've they've triage the patient over the phone?
2: Well, I could just start with when we started this program. I don't remember how many of us, there were eight or 10 that said we would take the calls. We had no training. We didn't even really know how the Doxy medical program platform worked. Maybe we practiced with each other for a hot minute, but we, the people that said they would do it just did it. There was no training really. And so fast forward now, a year later into it, I'm um, we're needing extra people. You know, our people we have are getting exhausted of taking the call. And some <laughs> people jumped in, but a lot of people are like, oh, I'd have to do a peds review or I'd have to take pals. Or, and it's seriously, you know what they're calling about, you know, the feedings, this kind of thing. And as far as medical liability, I feel like um, if you have the confidence and you know what you're doing and you're seeing the baby, if you have any question at all, go ahead and send him to the emergency room. It's not That's our fair. cup of tea doing that. And it, I mean, I know one time I was on the phone with Amit with a baby I was worried about and his wife's in the background going, why are you guys so scared to send up to the ER? Just send him. That's right. Just do it. <laughs> Just she was right. It. But um, so the, the, I, uh, it, it, the questions are so basic. They just don't have an understanding really after being in the NICU for four months uh, going home. And sometimes I think you've had people in the program that have just been in the NICU a week and they're traumatized by that. And sometimes Perfect. it's those patients that haven't had enough connection with us that really have some valid questions and they just need to know how to take care for their baby. Um, but you always have the option of bringing them in. You're being-
1: you're being too kind, Kim, because I remember, so my residency program, we did a ton of ER, like really an excessive amount of ER. We had like one of the busiest ER in Queens, New York. And so it was busy. And then I think what, what you're alluding to is that people go to the ER for some things that are really, really benign. So we did also phone triage. And so, for example, you would have a parent calling and say, hey, my baby didn't stool this afternoon. And it's like, Okay, like don't don't come to the yard ER for that. <laughs> yeah. You do not need to come to the yard ER for that. And I think like you said, if anything is a little bit off, feels off, sounds off to you, yeah. then that's it. I'm not dealing with this on the phone. Bring the baby over and we will take a look. So I think there's there's this uh, it's not I think there's not a gray I think what we were taught as residents is that there's no gray area. Either it's clearly nothing right. and then you tell them just watch it at home and go to your doctor tomorrow if you have any concerns. And then anything else? then come and get assessed, right? You don't have to take the burden of taking that on over the phone, over over uh, a video call. And I think that's what people, I think, tend to get stuck on. It's like, oh my God, they're going to call me saying this baby is having jittery movements. Maybe it's a seizure and I'm going to have to manage this over no, the phone. It's bring like, no, 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 if that's the call, then but, yeah, yeah. that's it.
2: Well, and it's luxurious <laughs> to have the video yeah. because I can say, let me see their sure. tummy. Yeah. Poke on their tummy with your finger. I was super nervous that I didn't have a stethoscope right. But I don't have to listen to breast sounds to see uh-huh. somebody head bobbing and to Kipnick, you can see that. I mean, I, you can see it. Right. But it it, right. it that is a part that I wish. I mean, I want people to understand because I would like more hospitals to pick a program up like this and do it. It's been so valuable to the community <laughs> and to the families. It is not difficult to to look at a baby and know you're fine, or you know, let's. Let's go check this out and then speed him into the ER because I don't want him sitting in the lobby. Yeah, right, right.
0: Um, we're we're that's such an important. I think your care coordination, I think, is so valuable for the baby and the families and the 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 other providers who are receiving them. Right to get uh, information in advance. I know we are getting close to the end here, and we spend a lot of times a lot of time on the the one arm, really, this urgent care but i hope you can talk a little bit about this collaboration with smoothweed home about the um kind of scheduled uh visits um for um the the second arm of the program
3: yeah i you know i and i think one of the the other just to add on to um, some of what ben was talking about we we are mm-hmm. not their pediatrician Right, so we are not their primary care doctor, and we have been very clear from the get go that we are we are there to enhance their transition from hospital to home and to support them. But ultimately, uh, their care in terms of you know weight checks and whether they're thriving or not, labs, etc. That's that's going to be directed by the Peds. And about half the time, uh, we are able to even within our conversations give recommendations to pediatricians. I think we've we've all experienced or we've probably heard about situations where pa- patients are discharged. We work so hard on getting them to grow, right? We discharge them on 24, 26 calorie. They're on, um, you know, they're, they're on the right regimen finally. And then they get to their pediatrician and they have like a week or two of good growth and then they get put on 20 yeah. calorie. Like, oh, term formula is fine. No problem. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, I mean, there, there's a lot of work but that went it. into this. So we- Sustaining what we do in the NICU beyond, you know, beyond discharge is really important too, because I think that validates all of the work that we do in the NICU. So as a part of that, we, we felt, you know what, we can leave this completely into the arms of the families. But at the same time, if we schedule a couple of visits with them once they're discharged, and they're usually, the first visit is usually within that first week of discharge and you know uh, and I think what we what we've learned is parents will often say no I'm good I don't have any questions and then by the but 30 minutes into it we're like well no you had more than, more than one question um, and it's well one more thing let me ask you about this let me ask you about this and so you know I, I think we understand the limitations of a pediatrician's office there's there's a lot of churn and you know 10 15 minute visits um, they, they don't always have the time and the energy and the effort to to spend the as much time I as think. the patient needs. And we we do. I mean, we...
1: And our pediatricians are, are under a lot of pressure, pressure. Right.
3: To, to, to
1: see as oh, many totally. patients in a day as yeah. possible.
3: Absolutely. Volume is is what's driving their, you know, their production. So uh, for us, it's really just to be there, that support. So scheduling a couple of visits has allowed us to, one, get families familiar with the program to say, hey, you know what? You can use this. Even this weekend when your pediatrician is closed, you are able to use this. But two... Let's talk about things that you may not even know you Uh have issues with. Uh Let's make sure that, you know, do you understand why you need this Uh ROP follow-up? Yeah. Oh, boy. You will be so surprised. We talk till we're blue in the face in these NICUs about the whys, you know, and your baby had an intraventricular hemorrhage. This is why it's important to do this and watch development. Uh Your baby has ROP. This is why it's important. But. I mean, again, absorption and you know, understanding is such a small percent. And so it's really nice to be able to reinforce some of the whys because that will just lead to compliance. Um, that will lead to patients saying, you know what, it is important that I go to this this eye appointment six months after I'm discharged just to make sure that even though I was cleared, it's, it's important that I follow up. Or, you know what, I need to make sure I keep those physical therapy, occupational therapy, appointments because you know my baby's development is at risk uh-huh. and you know i may not feel that because now the baby's home and she's uh-huh. a normal baby uh-huh. but we we know that's not not always the case so the scheduled visits really gives us an opportunity to be proactive uh, about about issues in a very non-tense, you know, situation.
1: And so to get some buy-in from people who are listening, who may be interested in, in joining the program, starting up a program like this, what is the cutoff where, after which you say, okay, this baby is now, uh, has aged out of the Vine's program, just so that people also understand that you're not getting a call for like a seven-year-old with a cough.
2: <laughs> oh, well, we have frequent... Who was a premium we have frequent yeah, flyers, exactly. and I had one mom, a seven-month-old, and she goes, I thought it was for the first year. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not. <laughs> but i i I did send her to the er because i think that kid had an RSV, and he was really working hard to breathe and i could see that but and we also have frequent flyers who call us we're like oh it's jovan again yeah (laughs) 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 sometimes on gets on and says hey it's two months we're good and you know it's pediatricians starting to take over and
3: so so it is two months so 30 days, yeah, 30 days is our is our window. And I think this kind of goes back to what you were asking about Ben too in terms of liability. We we are neonatal providers, we right. understand that and and um you know to add to what Kim was saying too, when we first started this program there were so many questions that came up on how to manage and how to talk to families about some of these outpatient issues and yeah, you're right. the The reality is, is they they're not general pediatricians. A lot of our, our nurse practitioners haven't even but done then. general peds. If you think about their training, right? So, um, so it did take. You know, even though there wasn't formal training, I think there was a lot of on the on the spot training <laughs> of. You know, they have. A, what do I tell this family? How do I, you know, engage them? And so, you know, I was involved in a lot of those conversations early on. But 30 days, the first 30 days, I think we're all very comfortable. With with trying to help families transition and um, and really just extend our neonatal hands because they all the problems don't change the minute they go home <laughs> they're all the same ones that we were just rounding on with our sheet <laughs> you know the the day before yeah. so yeah.
1: and and to that end I mean and, and I want to close up by mentioning also something else but um, I remember as a resident I did a lot of high risk follow up and and William Malcolm's book Beyond the NICU. Um, Is a great book because you can have a lot of the issues that come up after baby leaves the NICU. And then you also realize that it's like, oh, I I know how to manage all these things. It's like, it's pretty much the continuation of what we were doing in the NICU, which somehow should be self-evident, but it isn't. isn't. And um, as we're getting to the end uh, of the hour... I wanted to mention that a lot of the things that you presented today were beautifully um displayed on this uh, poster that you presented at Vaughn. Uh, I think it was either this year or the last. and And so, if that's okay with you, is it okay if we post that on the on the episode page so that people can see a little bit um some of that information because they are great. It's a great poster number one. if you're a and you want to see how to make a, a good poster take take notes. But it does have a lot of the questions yeah. that we addressed today, which are sort of what are the most prevalent topics that are being brought up during these visits. What are some of the uh, effects on on ER visits and so on? And also have a, a nice a section on on patient comments with a nice little word cloud with uh, how patients felt about this. So I thought um, if it's okay with you, we'll, we'll post that so that people can can take a look. Um, Daphne, anything else before yeah, we close would, out the show? That would be great. No, that
3: I we appreciate you guys. You know, yeah. Uh, being able to talk to us about vines and um and just what you've created with innovation and and the podcast here is phenomenal and i think it's a good it, it's actually an incredible model for anybody to say you know what if you want to think outside the uh-huh. box you're uh-huh. you're allowed to in uh-huh. entomology. there are different ways to do things um and that we all have a, a social responsibility to 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 be innovative to yeah. think outside the box and to bring new things to the craft that we we practice every day so thank you guys again and we really really appreciate I it. i
0: mean i had three or four more questions but i don't think we could end on any better note than <laughs> what you just closed <laughs> us out with so i'll email you my questions <laughs> thank you guys kidding. so much Thanks. for being here thank you so much for what you're doing in your community and again we, we just are so hopeful that this will serve as a model for for other communities because there's an obvious obvious um need
2: it's a huge for sure. benefit to them, I mean, feel free to put my email in the area. To, I'll be happy to answer oh, we will. questions and we will. get no other problem. people on. And I appreciate what you two do. It's wonderful. Yep, yep. I think I've listened to every podcast. We appreciate <laughs> Thank you, you so much.
1: So you're absolutely,
2: the listener. <laughs> that's it. <right. laughs> oh what? yeah, and my the friends asked me how many, how care, much guys. following do these two have, and so I couldn't figure that out because you're on so many platforms. Do you have any idea? Yeah. Uh,
1: well, so we are very proud. We're very proud to say that the podcast is getting approximately, on average, about five thousand listens a week uh, from all around the world, and uh, and we we could not be more thankful to the community for, for best that best. number, and and it's growing. That's so, uh So no, it's uh, we're very. I mean. It's what Amit was just talking about. We tried something. We had the, the, the thought of saying, if this doesn't work out, we'll move on to something else. But the need was there and the response was there as well. So, uh, yeah. But thank you for giving us an opportunity to market ourselves. <laughs> That's right. right
0: here. <laughs> we did not cause... plant that question. <laughs> no, they so...
3: didn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank right you. Is? Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nicupodcast or through our website,